With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of Nicole Armando. Largely told in the words of her defense committee, a group of women who have dedicated the past four years of their lives advocating on Nikki's behalf. Many of the facts in this two-part series have been disputed by Putnam County's assistant DA, as well as others. But the story that follows is based on eyewitness accounts, a mountain of documentation, as well as testimony and other evidence, recently determined to be reliable by the Supreme Court of New York Appellate Division. This episode also includes descriptions of sexual violence. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Previously in part one of Alive But Still Not Free, you learned harrowing details of the extensive history of sexual abuse Nicole Armando suffered at the hands of her intimate partner, Christopher Grover. You also heard how in the early hours of September 28, 2017, Nikki fatally shot Chris in their apartment. After recounting to police what had happened, Nikki presumed they believed she'd acted in self-defense. But as they continued asking her questions, it became clear to Nikki they had another theory, and she was charged with second-degree murder. Join me now as we examine Nikki's claim of self-defense at her murder trial. We'll take a look at the darker side of the judicial system that doesn't always get it right, and how a group of fiercely determined women fought to bring Nikki's truth to light. Before we get into the details of Nikki's trial, let's take a look back at the exact moment Nikki pulled the trigger. In Nikki's testimony, she stated, Chris was lying on the couch, his feet up, unarmed. Standing close by was Nikki, holding Chris's loaded 40 caliber handgun, the front door mere steps away, all facts that were never disputed. But if you only take a look at this snapshot in time, it's conceivable how a jury came to their conclusion. In order to claim self-defense, Nikki needed to demonstrate why, in that exact moment, it was reasonable for her to believe her life was in imminent danger. It required the jury being able to see beyond that snapshot. What it required was context. And the context was Nikki's extensive history of violent abuse suffered at the hands of Chris. Context is why she was in a better position than anyone else on Earth to understand he intended on killing her that night. It's why when Chris told Nikki he was going to kill her, 
Even though she was the one holding the gun, she believed him. The jury understanding the full context of that moment would be the difference between murder and self-defense, the difference between prison and freedom. So it's no surprise the prosecution did everything in their power to remove that context, to take Nikki's story away from her, and it started long before the trial even began. After her arrest, Nikki sat in the Dutchess County Jail without bail, waiting to hear whether or not her case would be presented to a grand jury for indictment, a decision that would ultimately be made by the Putnam County Assistant DA, Hannah Kraus. At first, it appeared Hannah was sympathetic to Nikki's story. After all, she had a fierce reputation for prosecuting perpetrators of domestic violence. Nikki's public defender, Kara Gary, was hopeful if Hannah understood Nikki's history of abuse, the charges might be dropped altogether. Caitlin Sanford and Elizabeth Clifton described those early meetings between the assistant DA and Nikki's defense team. So when Hannah Krauss was assigned, she reached out to Kara, basically played the game, listen, I'm not married to the idea of prosecuting Nikki. I just need to figure out, like, what went on here. So if we work together, we can more easily ascertain the truth, and that will lead to better outcomes for your client, was basically how she sold it. What she did is she said to Kara, all right, who are your witnesses? I want to speak to them. And I also want to put them under oath. So we gave depositions, like myself and... Nikki's sister Michelle and her therapist and like a whole bunch of people and I'm here to say that that was a terrible idea obviously we all told the truth about what was really happening under the guise of getting to the truth the assistant DA was essentially getting an inside look at what Nikki's defense strategy would later be this is the way they pigeonhole you they get witnesses to say things under oath. And then later on during a trial, when they put that person back under oath to give testimony in the court. What they can do is just take anything out of context and not have to give the whole context. They're able to cross-reference what you say on the stand with what you said in your statement. And they pick them apart even over word choice. Any way to twist any words that anyone says. They will harp on, well, before you said she was sad, but now you're saying she's upset? They tried to do that because the line of reasoning they fell to the jury. If this person cannot consistently and accurately reaccount exactly what they said the first time, then they must be lying. However, that's not how memory works. In fact, it would be more concerning if someone always said the exact same thing to a T, to a word. Then that tells you, well, maybe that person has rehearsed their story so well that they know it like the back of your hand. By the beginning of June, Nikki was still sitting in jail unindicted, 
Eventually, her public defender filed a writ of habeas corpus demanding her release from jail. Nikki's release seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Despite having waited more than eight months, the assistant DA presented Nikki's case to the grand jury just two weeks after Nikki's release. And after a grand jury indictment, Nikki was officially going to trial. As Elizabeth will explain, after the indictment, the prosecution fought vigorously to prevent the possibility of Nikki getting out on bail. We have, in America, the right to post bail. And her bail was set at $600,000. We did not have $600,000. We worked so hard to raise some cash collateral for bail. So, like, everybody who was at least remotely involved with the situation donated money. And the prosecutor contested the fact that even these people were allowed to give bail and then personally and had her investigator call our bail donors and try to intimidate them out of giving bail money. Do you understand that this person has been accused of murder and how will you feel if she gets convicted and you've helped to have her out on bail? Finally, in December 2018, after spending more than a year in jail, unconvicted of any crime, Nikki posted bail and was reunited with her children. But the reunion would be short-lived, as her trial began just three months later, on March 18, 2019. The playbook for the prosecution against Nikki was fairly straightforward. Step 1. Discredit the victim's claims of abuse. Step 2 argue that even if there was abuse, it was still murder. It would be up to the jury of eight women and four men to determine whether or not Nikki truly believed her life was in imminent danger the moment she pulled the trigger. Let's start by examining step one. At first glance, it's hard to imagine anyone claiming Nikki hadn't been abused after hearing the details of her history in part one. Not only supported by people who knew her, but by documented evidence. In fact, there was so much evidence, even domestic violence expert Kellyanne Costellarier, who Nikki's lawyer had called in as an expert witness, couldn't understand what the problem was. When I met with Nikki's first attorney on the very first meeting, I was like, you have more evidence than 95% of any case that I've ever seen. Like, what's the issue here? The problem was, the information and context explained in part one would not be what the jury would hear, and that made all the difference. A lot of people have the assumption that, well, it's all going to come out in the trial. No, no, it does not. McLaughlin made a series of rulings that kept very crucial information from ever being heard by the jury. The context was demolished when the judge excluded the bulk of it on hearsay grounds. Laura Mukadanu, a longtime friend of Nikki's who attended her trial, describes the kind of evidence that was excluded. There were threatening text messages from Chris to Nikki directly, medical records documenting the abuse, so many key pieces that clearly show that Chris Grover was the abuser here because that was one of the things that the prosecution kept saying over and over again, that there is no evidence that Chris was the one abusing her. 
well, there wasn't any evidence because they withheld it at trial. And if they hadn't, then it would be very clear and there would be no way to discredit any of that because he himself was threatening Nikki. And it was in writing and it was very disturbing. Those did not make it to trial. What did make it to trial was pictures of him in a pink tutu that were placed on the screen and they talked about how loving and likable and funny and outgoing Chris was and yet Nikki and who she is as a friend, as a mother, as a member of her community, that was never even touched upon at trial. You never got to get a sense of who Nikki is. Why are they not talking about Nikki? This is about Nikki and who she is, not about who Chris wasn't. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. All three midwife exams from 2017. The ones where Nikki was so horrifically injured that full and proper exams were impossible. Naming Chris as her abuser were excluded as evidence. Everything related to Chris's pornography account was also excluded, on the grounds that it was impossible to prove definitively Chris had created it. Instead, all the jury would see were degrading screenshots of Nikki. No website name, no profile description and none of the titles on the videos that indicated forced sex and rape. They showed these pictures of Nikki bound, gagged, being assaulted, but with no contextual evidence to coincide with it. Now, the contextual evidence that McLaughlin kept the jury from seeing was that this was a profile that Chris had created. Chris made this, all the account information that was adjoined with the, the profile all completely matched up to Chris's information, namely his age, his interests, and that was all kept from the jury. The prosecutor was literally allowed to say things like, well, we don't know who was on the other side of that camera. Without key pieces of evidence, suddenly step one, claiming the defendant hadn't been abused, at least not at the hands of Chris, was a real possibility. The prosecution was then able to use the absence of evidence as evidence of absence. 
The biggest hurdle still remaining for the prosecution was the lineup of defense witnesses who testified to the abuse Nikki had suffered by Chris. This is where the underhanded tactic of having these witnesses deposed under Nikki's first public defender came into play. Statements that had been given to the assistant DA under the guise of helping Nikki were now being used to question their credibility. The door was now wide open for the prosecution to create their own narrative to present to the jury. Strategically, some photos of Nikki's injuries managed to make it to trial. Photos from Nikki's 2014 forensic nurse exams, the ones where Chris had burned her with a spoon, but Nikki's official statement to the nurses that Chris had caused the injuries was ruled inadmissible on hearsay grounds. Because the prosecution couldn't deny Nikki had never been injured at all, instead they offered up theories to explain the photos to the jury. Nikki is sitting there at trial having to listen to this prosecution say that she created these pictures or that she self-inflicted or that she liked it or that she asked for it. I mean, it's, I hate to say it, but it's like, it's, it's almost comical. Like it's absurd to, to hear these theories thrown out there. It was like watching a bad movie, the theatrics of it all. This is someone's life that we're talking about. Just hearing Hana throw out these theories that didn't make sense. And if you followed any of them, they all fell flat. Nikki was in the wrong. And she's manipulative. We're not going to give you any evidence of that besides just repeating the word manipulative. And we still can't give you a motive because FYI, there is none. Whatever ounce of dignity Nicole had going into the trial was totally obliterated with photos and theories that re-traumatized and re-victimized Nikki in front of a jury and a packed courtroom. Not only did Nikki have to listen to these dehumanizing theories at trial when she took the stand in her own defense, she had to face them directly. I was so proud of her when she testified because she was so gracious and strong and she spoke her truth and she spoke about things that and that were so difficult to I can't imagine talking about some of those things and she got up there and the strength that she had in order to do that I was so blown away it was just so hard because I just wanted to hug her and just tell her how sorry I was that she had to do this because so much of Nikki's documented abuse had been excluded from trial, it gave the impression she hadn't identified Chris as the one who'd been hurting her. The prosecution then presented Dr. Stuart Kirshner as their psychiatric expert witness, who attacked Nikki's memory, referring to her as an unreliable historian regarding her history of abuse and the identity of her abuser. Because Nikki wasn't able to remember the entire history of her abuse perfectly, the implication to the jury was, well, can we trust her memory at all? Although imperfect memory is a known, predictable and expected result from trauma, the prosecution seized the opportunity to paint Nikki as promiscuous and unreliable. 
This is a dangerous catch-22 many survivors of intimate partner violence find themselves in. If they can't remember their abuse perfectly, they're portrayed as unreliable, even liars. But if they can remember all the specific details, this in itself could indicate a lack of trauma and therefore a lack of abuse. Either way, a prosecutor could use it against them. Another tactic used by the prosecution was to deliberately obscure the timeline of Nikki's abuse and in doing so, presented the idea that if Nikki was abused, how can we be certain it was Chris who abused her? They tried to obfuscate the reality and say that, oh, well, maybe some other mystery man had been abusing Nikki for all this time in the recent past when there was no one else around in sight for that to even be a thing. According to Dr. Kirshner, Chris didn't fit the common characteristics of an abuser. He didn't appear jealous enough or controlling enough. He used examples such as Chris letting Nikki leave the home for car rides at night, stating, quote, Again, this is totally contrary to what a person who wants to exercise control over his woman, so to speak, would allow her to do. He also used the example of Chris allowing Nikki to communicate with her therapist, stating, quote, How could she get a message out if this guy is isolating her from everyone and not basically holding her hostage? This line of reasoning plays into a common myth regarding abusers. A lot of times, the hardest thing for people to wrap their heads around when it comes to those who are abusive and use abusive behaviors is they are very calculated because they operate one way in the outside world and in the public, and then they operate in a very different way within the confines of that relationship. And really, Nikki's case illustrated this very, very well, because as we saw in the trial, we saw a very distinct picture of the deceased, and that was really framed in who that person was to the outside world. So who they were in their professional setting, pictures around their connection to coaching and really looking from the outside in as everybody liked him. And that really is a universal in many ways experience that many victims have when they share or are able to say to someone that they are unsafe or this is what's been happening in their relationship because everyone else has a different experience of that person. It's why they can, in many ways, walk among all of us. The prosecution never produced any evidence to prove their assertions, but that didn't stop them from repeating their theories over and over again. The greatest weapon the prosecution relied on is what's perhaps the most common myth regarding domestic violence. If Nikki was really being abused, why didn't she just leave that day or any time before? For domestic violence advocates, why didn't they just leave is probably the single most infuriating question. First, because it falsely places the responsibility for ending the abuse on the victim instead of where it belongs, on the abuser. Second, it assumes that a person can walk away from an abusive relationship safely, a fact that decades of research has definitively disproved. Kellyanne explains the insidiousness of this myth. Well, I think the first thing that always 
talk about is that, you know, we know unequivocally that three out of four women that are murdered by their intimate partners are murdered when they've either left, told someone they're leaving, or were in the process of leaving. So if we know that, then we must also accept the very truth that there are victims that are making the very difficult decision to stay every single day to save their life. And this idea that leaving stops the abuse is the biggest myth or misconception when it comes to what it means to have safety and the ability to actually live a life free from violence and abuse at the hands of someone else. Because ultimately, the person who has control over the whether or not that person stops experiencing that abuse is the person perpetrating that abuse. And so for many victims that are able to extract themselves in various ways from that situation, they're then forced into co-parenting with an abuser. For many victims, the violence increases. So the idea that leaving stops the abuse, we know that doesn't flush out in the numbers. And we know that when victims try to leave, in some situations, they're killed. And so there are lots of victims that are making life-saving decisions to not leave. Even if a victim does manage to escape their abuser, they then face the very real fear of what may or may not happen if they report their partner to police. You can go to jail far faster in this state for being abusive or kicking an animal than you can your partner. Every single day, we watch time and time again, the system fail to take domestic violence seriously and hold abusers accountable. And in New York alone, oftentimes the system relies on charges equivalent to a traffic ticket, meaning overwhelmingly they're charging harassment. And yet we're asking victims to put a lot on the line, meaning their lives on the line for what often constitutes at times on the initial charge or the plea, what is less than a traffic ticket. That's insane. Although the prosecution didn't disprove Nikki's story with any specific evidence, what they had done very successfully was begin to cast doubts in the minds of the jury regarding Nikki's credibility. They used those seeds of doubt to discredit Nikki's account of what had happened the night of the shooting. Now it was time for step two, claiming it wasn't self-defense. When it came to the night of the shooting, the prosecution had several arrows in their quiver that they used to great effect. The first and perhaps most emotionally powerful piece of evidence presented to the jury was a photo of Chris from the murder scene. There he could be seen lying on the couch with his feet up, his arms resting peacefully on his torso. With this photo, the assistant DA insisted to the jury that Chris had been killed in his sleep. Their own medical examiner, who was their witness, said on the stand that Nikki's recounting of the events that night were completely compatible with the way that Chris was found, that the chain of events could have occurred exactly as Nikki had said. Their own medical examiner admitted, as any medical professional would, that there is literally no way on the face of this planet to be able to tell whether someone was sleeping or awake at the time of their death. And you take that and you put it in conjunction with the fact that Chris was in his bed with the covers pulled up tightly to his chin. He was on the couch in his gym clothes. But that didn't stop the prosecution from claiming he'd been shot in his sleep repeatedly as if it were an established fact. 
there was no evidence at all to show that he was asleep when she shot him. The only person who ever said that Chris was asleep was prosecutor Hannah Krauss. Nikki didn't say this. She didn't say this to the police. She didn't say this on the stand. She didn't say that to anybody. And there was no forensic evidence to prove it. If the prosecution could get the jury to believe Chris was sleeping, that meant they could get them to believe Nikki was lying. And if Nikki was lying, then this wasn't a case of self-defense. This was a case of murder. Another tactic used by the prosecution was turning inconvenient evidence for Chris into damning evidence against Nikki. In the hours before the shooting, several Google searches were made on Chris's phone. The browser history showed searches that read, Will police know if she was asleep when I shoot her? Will they know she's asleep when examining her? The prosecution basically said that the searches that were conducted on Chris's phone, they said that it was Nikki who did them on Chris's phone, that it wasn't Chris who, who searched those Google searches, it was Nikki. It was crucial for the prosecution to tarnish Nikki's credibility by insinuating she was conniving, manipulative, deceitful, even downright Machiavellian, because they needed the jury to believe Nikki was a master manipulator, a master criminal, in order for them to believe what they would claim next, that Nikki had staged the crime scene. According to Nikki's accounts of that night, she discovered Chris's laptop underwater in the bathtub, a laptop she believed might contain evidence of the rapes and tortures. Although investigators managed to recover most of the data from the laptop, they didn't find anything incriminating. The prosecution theorized Nikki tried to destroy the laptop to make Chris look guilty, and she hadn't counted on detectives being able to recover data from it. They raised the question to the jury, why would Chris destroy his own laptop if he had nothing to hide? The prosecution counted on the jury making the leap that it must have been Nikki. This idea that Nikki was a master manipulator was presented at every opportunity. In fact, according to the prosecution, Nikki was such a skilled manipulator, she managed to convince nurses, police officers, therapists, midwives, all professionals with experience working with victims of domestic violence that she'd been abused by Chris. By the end, those who knew Nikki, like Nikki's friend Rachel Hawks, were shell-shocked by what they were witnessing. Hannah could just say whatever she wanted and she was just saying the same line over and over and over and like brainwashing this jury and it was just bullshit. And it was hard to believe that it was real or that anyone could believe Hannah. And yet, of course, we all know what happened. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. During Hannah Krause's closing arguments, she stated, as fact, more than 25 times, that Chris was sleeping when he'd been shot. This tactic of repeating an unproven statement over and over again, so that it eventually becomes truth in the mind of the listener, is called the illusory truth effect. And there can be no doubt, it was an effective tactic played by the prosecution. So if stating repeatedly Chris had been shot while he slept had now become fact in the minds of the jury, that meant the jury would believe Nikki was lying. And not only lying about that night, but lying about everything. What's so sickening is that Hannah saw so much evidence that was not admissible because she demanded it not be. And still, she was somehow able to just weave this narrative that was so limited and so false. After closing arguments, the jury deliberated for four days before returning the verdict to a packed courtroom. I remember looking at all of the jurors walking into the courtroom and each of them, you could see on their faces, they were so not prepared to give this verdict. And I remember looking at all of them one by one and wondering what they thought about all of this after everything that they had heard. Aside from all of the lies and everything that were told at trial, I wanted to look at them and look at them looking at Nikki. And I wanted to know deep down what they truly felt in their hearts because I know that they were so confused and distracted by all the bullshit that was thrown around. And then when the judge had all of the jurors each say their verdict, and then one by one started saying guilty. I remember feeling like I was just going to collapse. I sat in the courtroom grasping hands with one of the other committee members and just silent wailing, tears rolling down my cheeks, just like barely able to breathe. There were so many of us that we couldn't actually all fit in. And we were just shaking, waiting to hear. We were so anxious about it. And they came out, and the committee members just completely fell apart. And it just makes me tearful thinking about it. Just literally fell on the floor. The prosecution had successfully taken Nikki's story, excluded the bulk of her supporting evidence, and replaced it with doubt and disproven myths about women and domestic violence. Nikki was convicted of second-degree murder, and she was facing a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years to life. Just a few weeks after Nikki's trial, there was a glimmer of hope. The state of New York passed a law called the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, a law that would now allow a judge to consider lighter sentences for victims of domestic violence. In September 2019, 
The court held an eligibility hearing to see if Nikki would qualify to be sentenced under the DVSJA. If she did, Nikki would become the first person to be sentenced under the new law. The biggest problem, however, was that the judge was the same judge from her trial. In her favor, however, was that most of the excluded evidence at her trial would now be admitted as it was considered reliable hearsay. Despite the new evidence, Judge McLaughlin maintained Nikki's abuse history as well as the identity of her abuser as undetermined, and on February 5th, 2020, denied Nikki eligibility to be sentenced under the DVSJA. In his decision, the judge stated, Nikki failed to be considered because she had the opportunity to safely leave the moment before she shot Chris, an option she did not choose. Wendy Friedman recalls hearing the devastating news. It just felt absurd that with all the evidence she had, if the courts weren't going to believe Nikki for the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act, who are they going to believe? I mean, you really could not have any more evidence than she did. On February 11th, 2020, Nikki was given a sentence of 19 years to life. Her supporters described their utter disbelief at the judge's words. When I sat through the sentencing, I couldn't believe the words that were coming out of Judge McLaughlin's mouth. It just felt like no one today could possibly believe what he was saying about she should have just left or talking about rape as reluctant consent. He said, maybe you were worried that people would find out that you had reluctantly consented to intimate acts that you found uncomfortable. He called Nikki a broken person. For him to say like there was no evidence, knowing what he knew, having seen the evidence that was deemed inadmissible or hearsay and, and still coming to those conclusions, just, I lost all hope in our justice system. In a powerful and emotional speech, Nikki spoke at her sentencing and addressed not only her own situation, but that of countless other victims of abuse. I wish more than anything it ended another way. I wouldn't be in this courtroom right now, but I wouldn't be alive either. This is why women don't leave. They so often end up dead or where I'm standing, alive, but still not free. Nikki is one of the most gentle, loving, kind-hearted people that I know. And for her to be where she is right now, I just can't live with that. The DVSJA had been designed specifically with victims like Nikki in mind. In fact, many of the legislators who wrote the law were outraged it hadn't been applied to Nikki. Ultimately, her case made it to the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division in July 2021. This time around, Nikki was being represented pro bono by the law firm Sullivan & Cromwell. Speaking to the court on her behalf was Garrett Beanie. As Nicole's defense committee listened to the hearing, they began to feel a sense of hope. For the first time, we felt like Nikki's story was really being told the way it needed to be, the way that they were answering the questions. That part felt really good. And then some of the things that the judges on the, on the Supreme Court, the appellate court said, were just so validating. 
there are just some moments that we, we just took a pause in saying, did they really just say that after, after so many months of hearing just horrible, false things coming from the bench and from legal folks in the rooms? One moment that we particularly appreciated was when one of the judges called out the district attorney who was there basically saying, you need to be respectful of human beings. Being disrespectful in the way you are is not going to help anybody in this situation. And, oh, it felt so validating. And Mr. Glasser, and if I, if, I, and if I may, and this is constructive to you and all your colleagues, I found it long time ago, inadvisable, pro-con, irrespective of what position you take, be careful to try indirectly or directly or to have as a consequences dehumanize any human, no matter on which side of the equation you are, it doesn't always translate in a good way. At one point during the hearing, Garrett Beanie specifically attacked Judge McLaughlin's circular reasoning. On page 47 of the trial court's opinion rejecting DVSJA sentencing, the trial court said, quote, due to the myriad opportunities the defendant had to avoid the murder of Christopher Grover, the defendant fails by a preponderance of the evidence to be considered for a reduced sentence. Now, that is just simply saying that because Ms. Adamanda was convicted, she can't get a reduced sentence. That clearly is, as I say, with respect to the trial court, illogical, and certainly not what the legislature intended in the Domestic Violence Survivor Justice Act. And there are other places in the opinion where the court denied reduced sentencing based on the same analysis, pages 45, pages 42. Garrett also cut straight to the heart of the matter. The court had relied on disproven domestic violent myths to reach its conclusions. The second error made by the court was faulting Ms. Adamondo for not having left that night. And your honors, this is precisely the type of myths about domestic abuse that the legislature intended to eradicate from the system. The court, for example, faulted Ms. Adamondo for not taking the night of the shooting what the court referred to, quote, a path to escape. There are 4,000 women killed in the United States every year. 75% of those that are killed tried to leave, attempting this so-called path to escape. There are multiple other errors in the court's opinion in which it adopted these myths of domestic abuse Exactly what the legislature was trying to eradicate from the system are exactly the factors that the court relied on. With Mickey potentially being the first woman to be resentenced under the DVSJA, the Supreme Court knew it had an important precedent to set, and they agreed with Nikki's lawyers, at least when it came to her ability to be resentenced under the DVSJA. In their ruling, they reduced Nikki's sentence from 19 to life down to seven and a half years. They knew this is such an important moment with it being such a new law and that Nikki's case was going to be a precedent setter. And the fact that they believed her and that they reduced the sentence, we just were so grateful to them. Um, of course, we wished everything was overturned, but at least they believed her around the abuse and that she was protecting herself. It was then for the first time a court declared Nikki's history of abuse as not undetermined, stating conclusively, quote, The defendant established Chris had repeatedly abused her physically and sexually. That also meant that for the first time, a court had officially determined Nikki 
was telling the truth about her abuse. In addition, the court stated, Judge McLaughlin had based his findings on, quote, arcane beliefs that the defendant could have avoided the murder by withdrawing from her apartment, which are antiquated impressions of how domestic violence survivors should behave. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Although Nikki's truth had finally been validated by the appellate court, her conviction still stands and she's still separated from her children. The two reasons Nikki fought to live. Since Nikki was arrested, Ben and Faye have been living with their aunt Michelle Horton, Nikki's sister. Another person's life also dramatically changed. On September 28, 2017, Caitlin Sanford explains. When this happened, Michelle had to put everything on hold. Her entire life that she had worked so hard to build just kind of went out the window because overnight, she now had to parent three children instead of only her own son um, and children that were highly traumatized in their own right as well as be support to Nikki and trying to navigate this legal system with which they had no experience. She's had to navigate these very complex interpersonal relationships on behalf of the children. I mean, the children still see Chris's parents and family from time to time, all the while telling people the truth about what Chris was doing. And they are very much in denial, understandably so, that their son was capable of this. And Michelle has a ton of compassion for the position that that they're in, that they have lost their loved one. Because of the work of a few impossibly dedicated women, Nikki's case began receiving national attention, bringing these issues to the forefront. Featured on 48 Hours, Good Morning America, as well as a six-part investigative podcast, Believe Her. The women you've heard throughout this two-part series are all members of the Nicole Adamondo Community Defense Committee, and they remain as dedicated today as they were back in 2017 when Nikki was arrested. All of us were brand new to this. None of us had any experience. It's been a really amazing and powerful thing to be a part of. 
And certainly, if there is good to have come out of this, it is each of us learning, you know, how coming together, you can make change. Traditionally, you think of, you know, the accused and their attorneys and they're sort of, that's the legal team, right? But this idea that other people who care and have a stake in the situation can take part in it. And it's been extraordinarily powerful to be a part of because united, we are way stronger than individually. We are so much stronger. We have been able to accomplish the unimaginable. This group of women is truly incredible. And it really is a testament to to Nikki and how remarkable of a person she is that, you know, we'll never stop. We'll never stop fighting for her and trying to right this wrong. Just one month after Nikki became the first survivor to be resentenced under the DVSJA on appeal, there was a major political shakeup in the state of New York. In August 2021, Kathy Hochul became the first female governor of the state of New York. For Nikki's family and supporters, the governor offers one more glimmer of hope a chance to reunite Nikki and her children. A chance for clemency. Choosing a case like this to hold up and say, yeah, this is a case where the system got it wrong, can speak so much to other survivors. For Caitlin Sanford, who was there in the room with Nikki when her lifetime of abuse began at just five years old, it's a chance to right so many wrongs. A chance to return Nikki to Ben and Faye a chance to end the nightmare. To the governor, please bring my best friend home. Her kids need her really, really bad. And it doesn't serve anyone to keep her in there. You can be the hero in the story. Please, please, I'm begging you for mercy. Although a prison separates Nikki physically from her children, it will never separate them from her love. No matter how many days, weeks, months, or years Nikki has left behind bars, nothing will ever stop her from being the best mother she can be. Just watching her being able to mother, you know, from a prison cell, which is just unimaginable, she doesn't stop taking that role, even from when she's able to speak to them from afar over the phone to be able to have this imagination and to be able to create this sense that they're together when they're really just so incredibly far apart and they're just hearing their voices on each side of the phone but she's able to create this magical world where that all doesn't exist that they're together and they're actually in front of each other and they're having that conversation it almost feels like they're, they're together in that moment. She has this, this beautiful way about her, and it's a gift. It's a gift that she has with children specifically. And the fact that she's been ripped apart from her own children is so crushing. It's beyond heartbreaking to think of Ben and Faye separated from their mother until her release. But thankfully, Ben and Faye will get their mother back. Far too many children lose their mothers forever, either at the hands of an abuser or to a justice system that locks them away for trying to save their lives. 
It's estimated that as many as 77% of all incarcerated women in the United States are survivors of intimate partner violence, a truly staggering number, and far too many of them are sitting in prison like Nikki because they made the decision to survive. But Nikki and the members of her defense committee remain hopeful that what happened in her case will be just the first domino that leads to serious reform in the criminal justice system. Survivors and advocates across New York State and across the country are watching to see whether Governor Hochul will provide clemency for Nikki. This is not just a situation of offering relief to an individual incarcerated person. Given the number of survivors who went out of their way to identify themselves on our clemency petition for Nikki, it's so much bigger than just Nikki. Clemency for her would be a signal to all survivors that their lives matter. This is an opportunity for the governor to show her support for all survivors of domestic violence. The nearly 20,000 people who signed the petition are watching and waiting. Nikki's community, we are all on the edge of our seats, collectively holding our breaths and praying that the governor chooses justice and allows Nikki to come home. Governor Hochul has described her mother's tremendous advocacy for domestic violence survivors by saying, she inspired me to fight for survivors everywhere. I want New Yorkers to know that we will support survivors, always. This is a chance for Governor Hochul to show that she stands by her words and her mother's legacy. And for all those listening, individual action matters. It may not seem like signing a petition, sending an email, or making a phone call can make a real difference, but it does. Our learned experience is that when we come together, we can accomplish amazingly difficult goals. Please check out the We Stand with Nikki website or social media pages to learn quick action steps that you can take to help. I gave you every part of myself Cause our life was eternal it was more than a mortal could give You live and you learn That there's always a limit You never know it Till it hits you And it hits you
Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.